Please visit anywhenanywhere.com for more information about this program. It's our conversation with Brian McGill. A musician and artist. With a track featured on the Switched On Eugene compilation. Come with us as we travel to another Wanting to be cool. One recurring motif that has appeared throughout my interviews and conversations with people who make art and music is this connective tissue of having worked in radio and uh, the capacity for which radio plays a role is uh, always different, obviously. Uh, Some people did a little bit in college and then never again. Uh, Some people pursued it for many, many years and then suddenly found a music career afterwards. Some people had their music career and then found the radio career well after the checks had run dry. Uh, The the order of events is, is very different, but These two career paths seem to circle each other in different ways, where people who tend to want to make music in one part of their life are spending a lot of time with radio in another. And, you know, I've tried to think about why this might be the case or what the connection is between the two. And, uh, I mean, there are some obvious ones for sure, but I think that Underneath all of it, there is this similarity to the lifestyles of DJs and musicians, a loneliness, a, uh, a, a time spent in studios, uh, and also time spent exploring, uh, getting to know equipment and sounds and other people's music. Uh, you know, radio is a really excellent place because between cuts you're there in the studio alone with a massive library of tunes inevitably you're going to start pulling out stuff that you want to hear and then figure out oh wait that person's connected to this person and i I need that record now and uh, you know it's uh it's like shopping for records in a record store but without having to spend any money All of this is stuff that Brian McGill understands very, very well as someone who not only spent some time in radio with uh, his own show, uh, Another Green World, which was on KLCC uh, in the 80s, and in a way was a response to this growing interest in electronic music that was happening at the time in Eugene. And uh, all of this is documented in a compilation that we've come to know and love on this show quite a bit, the Switched on Eugene Numero Group release. Uh, And uh, yeah, Brian is on that compilation too, uh, as Philip Vernacular. Uh, But he plays a much larger role in organizing the EEMC and... uh, 
being involved in this other radio program. Uh, you know, um, the thing about little scenes like this is that they're not just the sum of all of the artists within them, but they're also uh, the sum of the different media outlets that champion the kind of music that's being made. And when it came to the EEMC, they had a friend in KLCC, uh, a radio station that was not only your typical kind of college environment where people could come in and get high and play a record by their favorite band and maybe forget to play the PSAs when they're supposed to. Um, it wasn't only that kind of place, but it was also you know, a community college radio station. And so there was a certain studiousness to some of the output. Uh, I mean, they, they took themselves very seriously as a news uh, outlet. And uh, their shows were often a little different than what you would hear elsewhere. I mean, KWVA, the U of O radio station, had very clearly carved out territory when it came to the kinds of shows that they would have. And they really much followed the trends of the time in the minds of U of O students. So uh, the kinds of shows that uh, Brian and, uh, well, the other uh, EEMC members were a part of, uh, that kind of thing wasn't happening at KWVA, which made it a different kind of station in the early 80s. Brian, of course, has done a million other things, and we get to his current music projects as well, but uh, this is a fairly reminiscent and nostalgic podcast for those who have a love of those heavy analog synths or just remember learning to play a piano as a child and trying to get good at the chord progressions and whatnot. Uh, there's a lot of the uh, way that we used to relate to music in this conversation, and that's something that I find uh, very charming in uh, speaking with Brian. Um, his story is not only one that I think I can relate to because it has a lot of similar points to my own story, uh, but... Brian's story is one of an artist searching for a way to make the kind of work they want to make and to express themselves in the way that makes the most sense. And for a lot of us, that's a journey that never ends. WTBC Radio in beautiful anywhere, anywhere. So I was actually at the House of Records event um, uh, in October um, cool. when you guys were, uh, I guess, kind of unveiling the uh, compilation. Yeah, the record release party, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I kind of was just hanging back because uh, there was a good number of people there that were not only like there to kind of shop for records, uh, but also to engage uh, you you guys and and talk about the EEMC and and whatnot. Uh, mm -hmm. How did the how, how did you feel about the event afterwards? Well, I I thought it was it went really well actually. I was also surprised that a lot of people showed up that were clearly there because they had heard about it and you know they wanted to come to see what was going on versus just 
wandering into the record store haphazardly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but so, yeah, I think it did go really well. It was it was fun. Excellent. And uh, we got a nice article in the Eugene Weekly, which was good. Yeah. And uh, I got a nice picture of myself with Peter and uh, Douglas, the guy who put the whole compilation together, and and uh, my friend Carl. Very so. cool. Yeah, uh, Carl Juarez? Yes. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, you know, I think something like this really speaks to... Um, at least in my mind, uh, those of us who have a little bit of an archivist in our collector habit, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in that um, you know sometimes it doesn't just stop with wanting to have the album. We we want to have posters and uh, um, uh, signed things mm-hmm. and zines and other stuff if we can. <laughs> right, right. You're sort of a sort of musical anthropologist, right? Yeah. And and, yeah. and this kind of project, I mean, there's so many different um, angles on it because not only were there a number of different sources for the material that was on the collection, mm-hmm. uh, but the artists are so varied that like everybody is like a capsule universe story of like the life mm-hmm. of an artist in each member on the on the comp. <laughs> right. The well, you know, the when. We were first approached, or when Douglas first got a hold of me and told me what he wanted to do, I was like, why would anybody want to do that? <laughs> I mean, I, I just didn't think that there was anything there that would be that interesting. But, you know, I, I realized after I talked to him that he was, that, that first of all, that's kind of what Numero does. That's their whole approach. They find things, scenes or whatever, or um, little musical um, schools and movements. Hmm that uh no one else knows about and they just they lovingly you know kind of assemble music and imagery and try to tell the story of what that was about right what was happening absolutely um so when i realized that he you know we i assisted him quite a bit and it did take a long took about three years to get everything uh all put together Mm -hmm. um part of it was driven by numero is a small company. And so they, you know, this project had to kind of wait in line behind some other projects that, mm. you know, needed to come out, sure. but it took a while to track everybody down and assemble everything and come up with, uh, contracts and all that kind of stuff. So, right. Cause I mean, the, I mean, the idea isn't that we're just going to do like a tape with a Xerox inset that this is actually going to mm-hmm. be a big release. That'll be in a lot mm-hmm. of stores and things like that. <laughs> right. Which I think it's pretty awesome. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, and I think that, you know, one thing that they do very well is, uh, as you kind of said, capture these stories. And uh, mm-hmm. all of these artists have very cool stories, including yours, because as I understand, you didn't necessarily even start in synths. You started in piano as a kid, right? Yeah, I was a, uh, I mean, my parents were both musicians. I was trained as a, or they endeavored to train me as a classical musician. Mm. That, that didn't go very well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Was it so, the uh, classical part, or what? Or what was uh, the barrier? I think it was the parental part. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know. So I took piano lessons up to about age, I don't know, ten or eleven or something like that. And mm. then I didn't want to have anything to do with music. And so I have a really kind of a lopsided set of musical skills because between about eleven and eighteen, or eleven and nineteen, mm. when most musicians are building their skills and really developing their uh, technique. 
I had nothing to do with music whatsoever. <laughs> I didn't want to have anything to do with it. Were you more and like sports or uh, what was your... I wanted to be an architect, actually. And I oh, came wow. to the University of Oregon as an architecture major. Cool. And uh, after two years in architecture school, it was clear that it it wasn't the right thing. I mean, architecture <laughs> school was not... The architecture department said, hey, uh, you know, we're wondering if you're really like into this because... <laughs> oh. uh, I mean, really, they, they did something that's rather notorious at the University of Oregon Business School, they call it a special advising meeting, which is basically the way the architecture school selects people they think are underperforming and throw them out of the program. Oh, um, wow. So, yeah. Hmm. And I told someone many years later, and I said, oh, you got sand. Too bad. <gasps> oh, no. Um, <laughs> there's a term well, for it. <laughs> there's a term for it. Um, well, the fact was, is that, um, you know, I, you know, it was fine. It was kind of a mutual thing. And uh, so it's like, okay, what am I going to do? And it was like, oh, I definitely know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go to music school. So mm-hmm. I came back to Portland and I went to Portland State for a year and built up enough skills and knowledge and theory that I could audition for the U of O Music School. And then I went back hmm. and graduated with a music degree. Wow. So, and your main uh, primary instrument was piano. Was through piano. This yeah. Okay. Wow. But you, yeah. So, uh, Although, you know, I got a Bachelor of Science in Music, mm. which is a really odd degree to get. Yeah. Um, but when I got back to the University of Oregon, I was starting essentially my fourth year. I had completely changed directions in college. Right. And I was like, all right. I went to my advisor. I was like, what's the fastest degree I can get? You know, <laughs> and he looked at it, he said, well, you got all these science credits when you're an architecture major, so... So you could get a Bachelor of Science in Music, and all you'd have to do is X, Y, Z. And I just wanted to make sure I wanted to finish in two years because I was already going to take an extra year. So that's what right. I did. So mostly I did that, and I sang in the choir. Um, <laughs> what that is, so that's such an interest. You know, most people who end up going into electronic music, they don't necessarily have like degrees in music, let alone like experience in the choir. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing is my son um, is just graduated with a vocal performance degree from the University of Oregon. So mm. uh, and he's going to he's applying to graduate school right now. So nice. It runs in the family. Yeah, it does. Cool. Um, and I think part of there was an interesting dynamic, though, when I was in music school, because I was doing this in some ways, I was just doing this to get the degree. But, you know, the thing that it, I had this parallel electronic music path that was running all this through here, right? Mm, so okay. when I was 15, I heard Tangerine Dreams Stratosphere, right? Oh, and yes. And somebody's car radio. And and it was like, I'd never heard anything like that before. And it just, I found it absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I had to find out what it was and I went out and bought it. And that kind of went along. And... Uh, I took a class in electronic music at, in summer school, um, mm. which was easy because my father was a teacher and he taught in summer school okay. in the Bearded School District. And so he's like, if I want to take a class, I got a free ride, right? Right. Dad was teaching summer school. Take and so advantage. he'd be like, okay, well, what do you want to take? You know, if you want, you see something. And so there's this class in electronic music and it was really, at this point, this would have been like the mid seventies. I mean, they had nothing, mm. right? They had like a 
metronome that had a tuner with a knob that had a little oscillator in it and you could tune it up and down. <laughs> and it, down. it had a tape recorder okay. and some microphones so you could make things go backwards. Um, but I thought it was really cool. And so wow. when I was 18, when I was back up here to get my music degree, I was simultaneously working in the Lewis and Clark electronic music studio, hmm. which had an ARP 2600 and a four track tape recorder. Oh, and wow. I had bluffed my way in there by sort of learning a bunch of terminology and pretending I knew what I was doing, but of course I had no idea. Sure. And then, then I had to try to figure out how the R2600 worked. And <laughs> I spent the whole first, I had like a two hour block or something, two or three hours in there. Mm-hmm. And the, but, guy who showed me you know, where he came well you know, you know what you're doing so here this just kind of like ran through everything and he left and the art 2600 is just bl- blaring this kind of bl- blathering drone of electronic <laughs> sound and i was like oh. and then i thought well what i want is when i push the key down that it makes sound and when i take my hand off the key it stops <laughs> it took me two hours the whole two hours to figure out how to make that work on the art 2600 I mean, um, you know, to, to, for putting this into context for people who are like used to these days going walking up to a synthesizer and having that exact push a button mm-hmm. hear a sound release, they're like, well, of course, that's what the synthesizer does. And we have to shake our heads and say, well, except that then synthesizers were very different machines. <laughs> yeah, they were. And people approached them in different in different ways. Mm-hmm. And they were seen as, you know, an Art Print 600 was really a semi-modular synth that was designed to be patched from one place to another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, and um, electronic music was in those days also viewed, uh, especially at the University of Oregon when I got back there, it's just this sort of joke, right? It was just mm. this thing off here. Um where that some people were interested in, but it wasn't serious music. It was just kind of something to play around with. Like a hobbyist's and, kind of uh, Well, thing. yeah, just some kind of novelty item. And mm. when I got back to the University of Oregon while I was getting my degree, then I also had got access to the, U, to the University of Oregon's electronic music studio, ah. which was a little bit better. Actually, it was way better. They had a Moog <laughs> Series 3 with nine oscillators. It was a huge Whoa. modular. Now, if you've seen the, um, the like, Moog Series 35 or the ones that they're reissuing now for, like, $35,000 mm-hmm, or $50,000, mm-hmm. yeah. that's basically what it was. It's a fantastic wooden case. Wow. And, um, of course, they got rid of it at some point or other. It's totally idiotic. But, wow. Oh, <laughs> I'm sitting here going, What? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Mm. Well, of course, I got rid of synthesizers, too. I, I, I could read you the list. You'd die if you heard the list of synthesizers that I own that mm. I don't own anymore. <laughs> yeah. No, but this uh, is the thing that I think happens for a lot of people is that, like, at the time, you don't realize what people mm. in the future are going to want to remember, you well, know? It's, it's just supply and demand. And, you know, friends of mine who acquired now insanely rare synthesizers got most of them for just ridiculously little money. I mean, when mm. I bought my ARP 2600... Um, I paid, I think, 200 bucks for it. Whoa. Now people sell. And uh, we bought a Profit 5 for also 200, 200 or 300. I can't remember. Hmm. Um, let's see. Um, and so there was a point, you know, 
in the early realms of electronic music, synthesizers were really unstable, temperature-wise. Right. They were sort of hard and difficult to work with. I mean, the the Moog in the electronic music studio, what you did when you got there was, the first thing you did was you ran over and turned on the Moog <laughs> because the temperature would drift for the first hour. And it was impossible because you'd set something up and then everything would be out of tune 10 minutes later. <laughs> right. And so you, you didn't even try to do anything in the first hour. You just turned it on. You just did something it. else, you know, put some tape on or whatever else you were working on. And then in an hour after everything had warmed up, then you could try to make the mode do your bidding and right. do something. Again, a, a practice that seems like so crazy now, but like. Then it was necessary because these were machines. They weren't just like mm -hmm. patches on a computer-based uh, synth or something like that. Yeah, they were, I mean, and they were enormous. I mean, the the mode it took up a substantial portion of the uh, of the room. You know, mm -hmm. it was the size of like a closet, yeah. a large closet. So, <laughs> um, the you know, so at the University of Oregon, I I did electronic music, and I still have a few recordings that I did there oh, not too many i had a lot of them actually got stolen believe it or not. oh no out of a garage in eugene i was in 1986 i was moving from eugene to portland and i had some stuff stored in a friend of mine's garage and they had this two i had a little chest of drawers mm. and all my reel-to-reel -reel tapes were in the top drawer mm. and in the bottom drawer though i i have a small measure of revenge because in the bottom drawer and they just stole the whole thing right right the bottom drawer was all my patch cables that didn't work <laughs> oh. so they got all my bad patch cables but they also got a, a huge amount of original tapes that i made in the early 80s and stuff which i don't have now i'm not um, imagining that they would have a way necessarily to even play these but like i'm trying to imagine people who are uh, prone to uh, you know uh, robbery listening to these recordings and trying to make something of them <laughs> well my guess is they they stole they just stole the chest of drawers mm -hmm. for whatever reason and then they just dumped everything out in the garbage and took the chest of drawers that was what they were trying to steal but right you know. exactly yeah and i always i always try to imagine because i i actually had a break in where people stole some of my records and uh mm -hmm. i was trying to imagine them sampling them before they try to sell them and I was like, I was just hoping that like somebody there would be like, oh, this one's really weird, actually. Maybe I'll keep it. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I had a similar experience with Tangerine Dream, uh, which I, I, I love that little tidbit because Peter was mentioning the same thing. Where mm -hmm. for me, and I came to it much later because I'm a little bit younger. Uh, but I just remember finding this record in a thrift store, the Stratosphere, the same one. Mm -hmm. And... Um, thinking like, oh, wow, this is like a weird old record, and then getting home and thinking that it sounded like light years ahead of anything I knew. <laughs> right. And this is in the 90s, and I, and I was just sitting there going like, how come this is like so old, but it, I mean, like, and to this day, I still feel like that about that record, where it still sounds like the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, That's was, true. Was that part of kind of what was interesting about electronic music, was that it, it, it had this futuristic quality to it or something that seemed you know, modern? That, I think maybe part of it. I mean, I also had an interest in science fiction and I had friends that were mm. even way more interested in science fiction. And electronic, to me, electronic music and science fiction kind of go together. It's kind of yes. 
in some ways, right? There is this futuristic aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you're reading but, Four-Dimensional Nightmare, you have to have some electronic music on. <laughs> like, that's just... Right, and, and I think it also comes from, if you look at the history of electronic music, uh, you have things like uh, Forbidden Planet, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where people, there was a history in the filmmaking industry of choosing odd electronic music sounds because the, you know electronic music in those days was totally alien and different it was it was a sound that nobody really knew right um, how how it was made or where it came from and so if you're trying to convey you know an alien laser beam right then you <laughs> wanted something that was different than any sound that most people had heard and so electronic music in the 50s and the 60s then was a natural for that right um they have a whole like Doctor Who aesthetic too of the yeah like you know um, opening tape spliced uh, um, oscillators and whatnot. Yeah, that's right. Um, and the whole uh, BBC Radiophonic Workshop. And yeah, that kind of stuff. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, and and those things sound like you know, I, it sound, I mean, it probably seems a little quaint for young kids to listen to us being nostalgic about this stuff. But I, I really feel like the something about that analog era of like heavy, in the in the sense that they were actually physically heavy synthesizers uh, making these sounds. There's something about that that's really evocative. Like listening back to those kinds of sounds, I, it's really I see like stronger images than when I listen to kind of digital stuff. I think the other appeal for me for electronic music was I was a relatively sort of anxious and shy person mm. and therefore I wasn't that inclined to work with bands and the thing about electronic music which is still true today is that an individual could sit in their bedroom and make music and they don't have to interact with any other people right, right? Yes. Um, and also you know they don't have to work in a band situation so they don't have to uh, those kinds of things and I think some of that was what was appealing too and I just but I still just love the sound of of analog oscillator i just like that sound i, mean, yeah, I yeah. like filters chopping through incredibly thick sign uh, saw tooth waves i just you know and, and i think if the sound just the timbres you could get didn't appeal to me mm. i i don't think it, it would have been that attractive but i really like the idea of being able to assemble a piece of music all by myself mm. right and do everything myself without having you know having to rely on other people right absolutely and trying to con- and then you know you're trying to con- not just from an interpersonal standpoint, but but trying to like convey what you want, what's going through your head, right, to other people. Yeah, that's always something I've always struggled with. Um, although, as I, the older I get, the the easier it is. And you know, right now, my current project is a uh, a, a Canterbury prog rock band, mm. uh, which I write all the material for. Very and, cool. And uh, I've been doing stuff for about two years now. Um, and so in that case, you know, I have all the music is actually written, notated out. And uh, although it's mostly my part, not other people's parts. And maybe <laughs> just a, a lot of rehearsal and lots of trying to get everything going. But, As is the, uh, the typical prog rock kind of uh, lifestyle. Rehearsal, rehearsal, rehearsal. Rehearsal, <laughs> rehearsal, rehearsal. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was fun. And, you know, the other thing I would say in my taste and, you know, what I want music and so forth. Other than Tangerine Dream, I hadn't really been exposed to any other electronic music. Hmm. And mostly in high school, I listened to kind of, I listened to, 
you know, Aerosmith and Rush and all these standard <laughs> bands in the seventies, you know, they were just kind of like the KGON Oh, uh, sure. KZEL is the station, the Mm, classic rock station. Right. I spent a lot of time on that station, too. Everything I listened to, right? And that was kind of, but then when I got into college, you know, I had worked in this electronic music studio and hadn't had much exposure to other electronic music. And anyway, there were two records a friend of mine had um, that really influenced me Mm. a huge amount and showed me that in the popular realm there was something else. And one was, he knows another green world. Oh, yes. And the other one was Para Ubu's The Modern Dance. Mm. And <clears throat> I was just talking about this record with someone else not too long ago, um, where that synthesizer coming in is like, what? What's happening? You know? <laughs> in, in some ways, they're both, you know, Para Ubu was just, the interesting thing about Alan Ramsey was that he would inject just randomly weird ass sounds into yes. an otherwise rock and roll context. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, so, which was kind of different than, I mean, Eno did some of that with Roxy music, but by the time he got to another green world, it's it was very, very it's, all that music is just being sort of crafted by him, right. With all these interesting sounds. And I just, Another Green World, I would just listen to it over and over and over again. Yeah. And I would always hear different things and new things in there. And I, the thing I loved about Eno was his uh, was the sort of figure ground ambiguity he would get with his music. He would he would place things so that with equal weight, uh, different sounds, and he would force the listener to sort of arbitrarily pick a particular element and make it the figure and put it the rest into the ground, but he did it in a way that that would change. If you listen to it another three times and the fourth time, suddenly some other element, would your brain would bring it to the forefront and make it the figure and everything else would be the ground. And the whole music would kind of flip around, you yeah. know, at least for me in a way that I, I found it absolutely fascinating. Now, of course I was completely stoned at the time, but that might've had something <laughs> to do with it. Now, um, you know, you can't discount that as as much as people would like to, but uh, yeah. I, I feel that same thing about that record because as I, I have grown up with it, I hear different things in it. Like, mm-hmm. and and part of it is like the way I'm hearing it. I'm no longer sitting in front of my stereo with the speakers, you know, spread mm-hmm. out. You know, it's mostly kind of on while I'm reading or something like that. Uh, but in the same way, like. It just I hear different stuff. Little things stick out, and I'm like, oh wow, you know. And it's like mm-hmm. I like records exactly. like that that can evolve over time, where I'm not stuck with this one version of it the first time I hear yeah, it. Yeah, different. You said it exactly. Different stuff sticks out. It's like, wait, this didn't stick out before. How is it sticking out now? So, yeah, or like you're so, like, was it always there? <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. Was it always there? It's time for dial a song. Hey, what the hi? It's John F. of They Might Be Giants, and you're listening to Austin Rich on WTBC Radio and Beautiful Anywhere, Anywhere. It's a podcast with Austin, and this is They Might Be Giants Song of the Week. This is the latest from us. It's our dial song. I want to say I learned something valuable today. Alas, my murdered remains are incapable of learning anything. Trusted you, 
I got those then I, I said uh it's like okay i'm gonna just i i had essentially a i already collected records and stuff but this was like a uh sort of like this calling i had this mm. calling so i must find everything there is by brian you know right? right i must do it mm. and so then you just start tracking down things and of course at first it was easy because i didn't have anything and there was all this and so then i just worked my way through the whole sort of roxy music you know Phil Manzanera sort of uh, universe, right? You're just like a rock family tree. It's like, okay, you buy a record one. It's got Eno on it. Okay, this one has Eno too. I'll buy that one. And then you're like, oh, here's this other guy. Right. Oh, wait, here's this other album with this guy. So I'll buy that one and <laughs> work my way through. And, and it's a pretty good education right there. <laughs> yeah. And it kept expanding my, expanding my universe. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, you know, discovered all sorts of drug rock. And then I just set up for, all the sort of strangest stuff. Yeah. And uh, well, you are perfectly primed at this point then for finding the new dreamers show on KLCC. Yeah. Cause like at this point you're, you're, you're fully committed to, I really want to find different odd things, but you're also mm-hmm. in this mode where you're kind of engaging it on your own. So listening mm-hmm. to the radio is kind of like the perfect discovery mode it's like you can sit at home but you can also just have all this new music wash over you that's right so new dreamers got to know uh, peter nothnagel and peter thomas was friends with peter Mm nothnagel and carl Juarez and i had known each other from high school in fact carl Juarez was the one guy was the guy who had the two records he had another green world and he had the perubu modern dance so you knew him a long time then I knew him in high school. Wow, um, cool. 
And so, well, yeah, we were both on our respective high school speech teams mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. would go to speech and debate tournaments. And so we met each other there and then we both ended up at the University of Oregon. So we kind of reacquainted ourselves. Nice. So, yeah. So then, and you know, it's interesting because people ask me, well, how did you meet all these people? And the weird thing is, it's difficult to know exactly. Um, so, yeah, how do you meet some, people? You know, it's like, some it is a people. Good some people I know uh, how I met them, and other people, oh, I'm not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. They were um, just there sometimes, you know. Yeah, well, you know, Daryl was, uh, I think, a couple people. He was somebody that you just I got to know because he was a good place to get pot from, mm-hmm, and so. Mm-hmm. And then you, I went over there, and it's like, holy crap, he's got this, this whole, like, apartment's full of synthesizers. And we're like, oh, you like synthesizers? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, and he's got on and on about this stuff, you know. And so then he became, I became, we became friends with him beyond just the fact that we wanted to go to Blanket Stone. Sure, and, sure. And Nathan, and Nathan Griffith actually worked at the University of Oregon in the cafeteria. And at that time, I had a job where... I was basically working as a sort of janitor after hours person oh. working for the housing department. Mm-hmm. And he also worked for them. And so then uh, a mutual friend of ours got to know him. And, you know, he was just like, wow, this is a way more interesting person than should be working at the housing department. <laughs> all right. these different. So then, of course, someone became friends. And then I spent a lot of that. And I went at his house. I just discovered all kinds of stuff because he had a huge record collection and he nice. had all this stuff that I hadn't really been exposed to. Um, so yeah. And then, you know, so all these various people were known to each other and, uh, and then eventually we just, we decided, well, we should form a group. So Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of want to dwell a little bit on the radio thing. Cause there was another show, not just the new dreamers one. I'm trying to get the chronology on this, right? So Peter, oh, okay. I'll help you. Yeah, so Peter Nothnagel had the New Dreamer show. That's right, he did. And that was kind and of before you guys all started meeting together. He, yeah, and it was. And it, it had been going for a while. Oh, okay. And then in, let's see, this would have been, let's see, graduated, this was after I graduated. So this would have been 80, somewhere around 84 or something like that. Mm-hmm. New Dreamers was a very successful show, and... Uh, KLCC decided they wanted an additional electronic music show. They had another slot for it. Interesting. Okay. And so they asked Peter if he knew anybody. Uh, and Peter was like, huh, I know some people. And so <laughs> it, he, he first person he called was me. Nice. And he said, hey, you want to have a radio show? And I was like, wow, that would be really fun. Mm. And um, so I went... So he said, well, by the way, do you have any experience in radio? I haven't done anything. And I said, well, no, I've never had a radio show in my entire life. Sure. And uh, he said, well, they kind of want somebody with a uh, third-class FCC license. Now, nobody cares about third-class FCC licenses anymore. Right. At the but, time, though, it did, it, it did matter. It was a big deal yeah. in those days. Um, and I'm like, huh, I don't know anybody. And so next time I talked to Nathan, I was, uh, I said, oh, yeah, but they want somebody with a third class FCC license. And Nathan's like, I have a third class FCC license. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it together. <laughs> In and the so, long tradition of uh, starting a radio show, two people join forces. <laughs> and, and so 
okay, fine. So we went to KLCC and we made a proposal, mm-hmm. you know, and they kind of were clear about what the kind of things they wanted. And um, so they said, okay, fine. And we had our show was between 11 and 1 in the morning on Sunday. Mm. And this is a slot. I would never have been able to do this except that my job at the time was actually from was a night position, right? It was kind of a swing shift. Oh, okay. And so I was I didn't have to get up on Monday morning. Mm-hmm. So that was fine. Perfect. Yeah, this is like yeah, yeah, this is like a perfect late night kind of hangout. And of course, Nathan and I at that point had much wider taste than than just electronic music, and we decided another green world was going to be a little bit different mm. in terms of a show. But the, and of course it was on at 11 o'clock at night. So the radio station people were just, you know, they were not that inclined to listen, but of course they had to listen in once just to see what just we to, did. Right. To make sure you're going to do it consistently. Do what they <laughs> and then they were, they were like, Hey, uh, you know, some of this, uh, other weirder stuff you're playing like, uh, Bill Laswell and other, <laughs> you know, that just doesn't fit with our, um, you know, kind of idea of the show. So I'm hoping you can keep it too you know, electronic music. So we're like, all right, <laughs> we can do that. So we did. Interesting. And uh, it was still, it was still fun. And we had to, in those days, KLCC did not go 24 hours. And so we had, last thing we did, we had the last show of the day. So we actually had to shut down the radio station, turn off the transmitter when we left. Oh, wow. And there were very, very specific instructions for doing that. So we didn't speak things up. Yeah. And we had to read the official announcement at the end of our show that said, LCC FM now concludes its broadcast day. Blah 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 blah. blah. <laughs> oh, and, it, which again it seems like a relic from another era because everything is twenty four hours now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and nobody, nobody doesn't. Um, but in those days, that's that's how they ran it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would go off the air and come on again at probably I don't know, maybe five in the morning because um, they were they were still already on our station, so they would do usually. Like, Morning news and yeah, how anyway. fascinating! Now, <clears throat> one thing that they kind of throw away in your biography as a mention is that the I guess another Green World had legendary Halloween shows. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> let's let's talk about it because I try to. Well, do... so that was our that was our excuse. Mm. Like, like Nathan and I had all this weird ass crap we liked to play, right? And but we couldn't get away with it unless it was Halloween, mm. right? So when it was Halloween, we just like threw all the rule books out and we would play just the weirdest, you know, creepiest, strangest stuff that we had on our, our, uh, our, you know, that we owned in our collections, just, right. you know, weird fifties sci-fi stuff, strange, you know, Meredith Monk, all kinds of strange avant-garde, <laughs> weird stuff. Oh, perfect. And, um, just the creepiest things we could come up with. Um, nice. And one one year we uh, and the other thing we would do we would do what we called soundscapes. Mm-hmm. And so there were three turntables, and we would we did early. This was before any kind of DJ rapping, uh, mix master kind of stuff was going on. Yeah. And we would do we would literally do live mixes. So instead of just crossfading you know stopping one record and starting another we would just crossfade them and into each other but we would do them we would use ambient material right so mm. that we would do all these cross it would be these long ambient electronic kind of uh 
DJ sets where we would we would slowly crossfade from one record to another, and it, the more we did it, the slower we went. So we would, it would take <laughs> like five minutes to crossfade and have both things playing at a time. And, nice. And we took it fairly seriously to try to get things going. And then for Halloween, we would do stuff like that with but with all the just totally creepy stuff. And when one year, I think the last year with Nathan and I did it, we did this for like 45 minutes, and then we came out of it with Welcome to the Machine by Pink Floyd. And it was like somebody called us up and was like, oh my God, you guys, that was so fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> 45 minutes, and it's like, and now, and you come out of it with Welcome to the Machine. That's so amazing. <laughs> this, you know, so. oh, wow. You know, I, I don't even know which uh, vector to kind of. Uh, interrogate on this one because uh, one, I mean, radio in those days, to I mean, like putting this in the context was very straightforward. You know, mm-hmm. you play the song, you back announce the song, you play a commercial, you play another song. Like that was like the, the very much the format. It was very strict, mm-hmm. and and even in kind of college or off the beaten path radio, mm, you didn't get a lot of experimentation like this. This is very unusual <laughs> right of course it was also between 11 and 1 in the morning and I, I i presume that you know after they listened about the first couple of weeks mm-hmm. i don't believe anyone from klcc ever listened ever again to <laughs> anything that we did mm-hmm. um and you know sometimes i wondered if anybody was actually listening you know every <laughs> once in a while somebody somebody would call us up and we understand that yes someone was listening right <laughs> um but yeah. not very often and then we did public good there was public, uh, you know, it was a public station. Mm-hmm. And so these days, public stations do all this underwriting and say who sponsored us. And back in those days, all you had was public service announcements. That's all you had. Right. And yeah. then you'd Don't have forest fires. <laughs> that's right. So we read public service announcements and, uh, and we would just read them live. You know, there was no like, there wasn't much in the way of tapes. There's a couple of few things here and there would be on what they call carts, right? Right. Uh, if you know what a cart is. Absolutely. Uh, so, but not much. Yeah. I just, you know, I always want. find uh, radio stuff like this interesting because, um, you know, I think there's a strong connection between people who pursue radio and people who later pursue music is that, you know, either one leads to the other or vice versa. <laughs> you know, like there's mm. something that, um, uh, uh, some so, pu- push and pull, uh, yin and yang. I'm not quite sure uh, how to. Well, I mean, of my friends, I have three friends right now that have been friends with for 30 or 40 years. Hmm. Who all have radio station shows. <laughs> There's something to that. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, so, yeah, are it, there any recordings of these shows or are they all lost to the ether? Well, I'm pretty sure they're mostly lost. Um, I don't. I know I don't have any soundscapes ever. Mm. Um, I know there's a couple of air checks that I had for a while. I have a whole bunch of uh, cassettes and storage and stuff. Uh, ah. stuff. So it's possible there might be a show there somewhere. Mm. Um, and we did do periodic air checks, right? Which you, you would just record 45 minutes of your show on a cassette or something. And then that was available to station management if they wanted to listen to, uh, you know, what you did or yeah, what you play. A practice that still exists these days, uh, yeah. but most of the time they just do it digitally and mm-hmm. you know the DJs sometimes don't even have to do anything. Like the management will just randomly record sections of your shows and sample mm-hmm. it. <laughs> you know. 
That's right. So Joel Horowitz. So actually, and two of those people are in the EMC compilation that have radio shows. So Nathan has a radio show in Ellensburg, Washington, where he currently lives, Hmm. called Waiting for Toast. Okay. Uh, on the current that public radio station, and he plays all kinds of whatever the hell he wants. Nice. <laughs> um, and then my Joel Horowitz um, has a show in Portland on X-Ray FM. Oh. And um, that is a prog rock show. Nice. Uh, called the PM Show, uh, and it's all electric prog rock. And he he tends to lean towards. Uh, well, he covers quite a bit of ground, but he, he likes a lot of sort of metal prog crossover stuff mm. that uh, like Opus or something that I'm just not in. It. <laughs> I don't really go for that kind of stuff very much. He likes it. Are you more um, of the uh, leaning on the yes end of the spectrum? Or? I'm on the more classic yes Genesis side of things mm. and much more into the, like I said, the Canterbury jazzy side of things. So right. like uh, that's where I like yeah very cool well this is like i mean considering the time and the place and the resources that you guys have access to and the number of you this is i mean like as you said the perfect time to form the eemc um Mm -hmm. you had this other uh angle that you could contribute to the group because you kind of had this like xerox art design aesthetic that you were doing with carl Mm -hmm. if i understand correctly that's right yeah. Now, did that start in high school, or was that a later kind of? No, that was something that came actually between Carl and I, um, and I actually I think was someone inspired by Carl's early efforts. But I also had access hmm. uh, at at night when I, mean, I was working this job at the University of Oregon. I had access to a free Xerox machine. Mm. Right. So now this was in those days that was incredibly rare right yes. most of the time you had to pay oh sometimes like 25 cents a page to make a copy right mm-hmm. so if you had to pay that amount in back in, you know in the early 80s it was kind of cost prohibitive to, if, to just horse around with a xerox machine mm-hmm. right you had to and, know and what you were just, copying and you had to like be more deliberate about it and you mm-hmm. couldn't just like goof off and see what happened right well right. i had the ability to do that and so i did a lot nice of it. <laughs> And, and, and again, uh, contextually, so when I was coming up, Xerox costs weren't much. I mean, they were 10 cents a page, basically. But mm-hmm. um, but again, right. the same kind of philosophy where, like, if you wanted to fool around with it, you really had to kind of plan, okay, I have 10 pages that I can mess with, and then after that I have to get serious. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you, know, you have, like, okay, I'm out of, my, I'm out of quarters. Right. Or whatever. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, that was led to a lot of it, but it was also at work. So we would, the other thing was that my uh, girlfriend at the time was an artist, mm-hmm. and she thought this was kind of interesting media, too, and she came up with some really interesting ideas. Um, so, for instance, we would just Xerox different weird-ass stuff to see what it looked like. Mm. And some of the most interesting results we got were crumpled-up aluminum foil. So if you a lot of the stuff on the wow. EEMC... Yeah, so if you Xerox crumbled up aluminum foil, uh, especially with an old crude Xerox machine, it kind of freaks out. <laughs> and uh, it makes really, really interesting images. And we did that, and then we did, like, mop heads. I mean, we're janitors, right? So it's like, what do we have around? You know, <laughs> oh, look, there's a mop head. Let's Xerox that, you know? Sure, sure. And, um, Which you wouldn't recognize that in the picture, but, like, mm-mm. you know that as the artist. <laughs> 
That's right. And so, and then you would just, we would just do iterative stuff, right? So you'd Xerox something with an interesting texture, right? And then you get Xerox number one, you, you put the lid up. And then in these days, it was also easy because the Xerox machines were incredibly slow. You know, they were just mm-hmm. like 1001, 1002, 1003. <laughs> okay. So you could, so you would just put image one on top of the Xerox machine and then you just wiggle it around while that Xerox machine was trying to make its pass. Right. right. So if you're actually changing and moving the, the, the piece of paper while the bar is trying to travel across, it's kind of like, well, it's, it's kind of the visual equivalent of, you know, screwed up panorama shots people take with their cameras. Right. Where right. something's moving at the same time. It's so almost can, like get a- really, analog glitch art or something like that yeah it way. is basically it is <laughs> and so we would a lot of i say almost everything you saw there like if you look at the emc compilation and you see the the image that carl did of the building that looks like it's lifted off the ground pointing sideways mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. That, that was a very specific very deliberate xerox manipulation and that space that's between where the building is kind of blurred in lines and moving up that's that's the image it's copying being moved at the exact point the bar is at that spot right (laughs) so the rest of the image is being copied faithfully but that part of the image is being stretched essentially along the bar being moved at the same direction as the bar so yeah it was it was all you had and it was in black and white and uh and we would steal and appropriate images that was um about the time that diane arbus's book came out and we were all just completely blown away by diane arbus and uh i mean she had been an artist quite a bit before but her the her it was basically a compilation book came out so we did a whole bunch of stuff with diane arbus images none of which is you you have seen it's not part of uh, EMC because it costs, mm-hmm. of course, copyright infringement. So Sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> but there's some interesting stuff that we did with those. Yeah. Um, well, and the, the packaging here really kind of tries to uh, highlight that aesthetic for the mm-hmm. um, Switched On Eugene comp. Like, all of the stuff is black and white. All of the insets are like images from these old tapes or uh, stuff from that era. Um, mm-hmm. like it really feels like you're opening up a zine that's just a little more, uh, well assembled. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting you should mention zines because Carl in particular, um, has been active in the zine world forever. And he actually, he's been publishing a zine called Chunga in the science fiction realm for, I don't know, 10 years. Hmm. Actually got nominated for a Hugo award one year. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and so Carl's, yeah, training is his uh, actually his skills and training are all in topography and in typesetting, mm. which of course is completely obsolete now because nobody, you know, everybody does everything on computers. But he he and a number of my friends made their living um, at the point where hand done topography and layout transitioned to computers, mm. right? and mm-hmm. so. In the first iteration, you had things like all this PageMaker and Quark Express. <laughs> and if you developed your skills, and, and, then, and then, so there was this great labor-saving thing and a need for people who understood computers and how to do this stuff. And so they had quite a career. But then after that, people just stopped doing stuff like that, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there is this 
big change, unfortunately. And yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's a bummer, too, because like there is something that's very um, aesthetically uh, awesome about the black and white Xerox zine art kind of thing where, you know, in the same way that it could represent punk rock, it could also represent electronic music. It could also mm-hmm. represent heavy metal. It could, you know, it was like there was something that was so um, uh, malleable about the form. And uh, you, what I really appreciate, especially about like the design of the compilation tapes and whatnot, is that there is this like, you know, and not quite uniformity, but there's this really like, you can tell that it's not going to be like a punk thing. You can tell that, it's, mm-hmm. you know, there's something about it that's pointing you in the, Oh, this is going to be something else. <laughs> well, yeah, although it, it, one thing that you just, uh, you know, I realize I haven't mentioned is that actually the punk scene and the punk aesthetic and especially kind of, they're kind of like DIY, do it anyway, kind of mm-hmm. uh, no matter what aesthetic we were deeply involved in that too. Somebody is, is bystanders, right? Right. But we ran, but you know, I loved, punk rock i just thought it was really awesome mm-hmm. and i really loved the scene i and we went to lots of shows um and we had a lot of crossover um carl was in the, a band called the carry on commandos which oh, if you yeah. have not encountered the carry on commandos mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was an amazing that was a a punk a, a sort of weird dada punk <laughs> aesthetic kind of <laughs> crossover thing sure and it produced really uh, interesting stuff none of the people in the band had any musical experience whatsoever <laughs> and any musical training and yet they were very dedicated yeah they um bizarre who was the kind of leader and songwriter mm-hmm. i mean they they worked hard they practiced and they became quite a um uh, talented group and they had no almost no normal instruments right <laughs> they it, i think you know we're talking about this i should put a link in the show notes because th- there's actually you can hear some of the carrying commando stuff on the um panic on 13th blog where um yes a couple of their okay. tapes are archived and uh, like for context and and whatnot it is worth hearing because we can say like oh it's weird punk rock and you'd be like oh okay but like you should hear these tapes. <laughs> like, yeah. It's something yeah. else. <laughs> I and I, uh, I mean, I was really good. Carl was Carl Juarez was in the band, mm-hmm. and I was very good friends with them. And I actually produced their cassette that came out. Oh, cool! And, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So most of what you if you've heard you hear in Panic on Thirty, that's that was stuff that I produced when I helped him. That's very cool. Nice. Um, did you do a lot of recording for other bands, or was that just for the carrying? No, I did. Actually, I did do recording and in, in engineering and stuff because I had a Tascam Porta Studio. I was Ooh. I had a job, nice. and I was rich, and sort of, kind of, relatively <laughs> speaking. To, um, to, yeah, to the scene, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I had a, ta- I had a full track cassette, nice. and I could record things, and I had some microphones. So it wasn't super high fidelity or anything, but, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. That was um, also uh, something that I did. WTBC Radio is also sponsored by Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce. Locally made in Portland, Oregon, Peggy's Sauce is 100% vegan and 100% ready for you 
to experience a taste explosion you'll want again and again. Available in three flavors, Hotter Melon, Ghostberry, Five Star Gary, Carolina Reaper. That's with avocados. For more information about Peggy's Sauce, including ordering inquiries, please visit Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce, all one word, on either Facebook or Instagram. Let me say it one more time, Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce. When you need a little something with an extra kick. If you want it, you can have it. But you gotta learn to reach out there and grab it. If you are looking for professional photography and contemporary style and glamour, then J. Jean Portraits is your destination. Based right here in Salem, Oregon, just like this podcast, J. Jean Portraits can offer the right kind of photos for the project that you have in mind. To help wet the whistle of people interested in J. Jean Portraits, we are holding a contest for the person or artist who would like to do a little photo shoot on us. Please send an email to austinrich at gmail.com and explain why you should have your band, art project, or whatever photographed in a short paragraph. And the most interesting entry will receive a full photo shoot package courtesy of J. Jean Portraits. You do not want to miss out on this opportunity to get professional quality photography for free. So please enter to win a free photography package with J. Jean Portraits. That's jjeanportraits.com. A professional look tailored specifically for you. You know, and I guess you know I wasn't trying to definitely malign that um, what the EEMC is doing is different than punk rock, but I think what I was trying to highlight is that the way you guys use those same tools is so mm-hmm. specific to a you know vernacular departing the pun um, of the electronic world and not necessarily like punk rock imagery. Um, no, I I agree. There mm-hmm. was, uh, I mean, part of that came from a certain. Uh, you know, basically, if you want to communicate information, right, mm-hmm. or or make art or produce written material, right? I mean, in those days, there was no internet, right? So mm-hmm. everybody today would have just had a website. But if you wanted to put something out, some creative thing, you had to, and you were doing self-publishing, right, which you had, there wasn't really no choice, right. then that was basically the cheapest media you could use. So, I mean, it, it in some ways, that that's, that's what held all those things in common, not the content necessarily, but right. the means at hand yeah, right, yeah. to do something. Well, and then you so. could put an ad in Op Magazine for mm-hmm. your stuff, and it's right next to a big record label's ad. Uh, and it doesn't, for someone mm-hmm. who's reading it, they don't know that you guys are just a small operation who's doing it yourselves. It looks just as good. Yeah, uh, that's that's true. It looked like... You know, you could make it look a lot more impressive than it than it was. I mean, <laughs> I think, uh, but I think that's true of lots of things. You mm-hmm. know, lots of people you just put an ad in there. Um, so, so that was cool. You know, we were also involved in. I was involved in a lot of shows in Eugene, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and both putting them on. So I was also somewhat of a promoter. 
Oh, cool. And, um, a a so, thankless job, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, my God. It's awful. Oh, okay. uh, I say this as someone who has uh, assembled some shows myself, and I just, you know, the last-minute phone calls you get in the hours beforehand are just excruciating. Well, the, the, the promoter takes all the risks. The band, you know, so the band says, okay, we'll play but you have to pay us $500 no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. And you're like, uh, okay. And then like three people show up. So, <laughs> you know, okay. You're like so, going to the bank. Okay. Here's your $500. <laughs> you know, so I mean, promoters, you can, can, you know, if they get the right people and they do a good job or things go right, you know, they can actually make money. That's good. But they can lose money too. Right. Um, so, so I did some of that and, <laughs> Yeah, it was really, it was kind of a fun, like I said, it was kind of a, a fun thing. It was just what we were, we were trying to do. And, yeah. uh, um, and it was fun to go to the post office box. Our post <laughs> office box was located in the University of Oregon, uh, the EMU post office. Oh, right. Okay. I'm not even sure if it still exists. Anyways, a little tiny post office. And uh, they were very small, now highly coveted post office boxes. And so... You would just go down, and, and Carl had it originally for some other purpose, and then we took it over. Mm. And uh, in the great tradition uh, of making zines and and DIY yeah, art, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he had he had uh, stuff from the zine standpoint, and mm-hmm. so. So, uh, you know, I, I do want to um, close uh, on the um, switched on Eugene comp with a few more thoughts. Um, because uh, you know, one thing that stood out was Carl had this handout that he was giving that was kind of corrections. In a way, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, that led me to wonder because you know everybody remembers these kinds of things differently, and so uh, I, I think back to bands I was in and go like, I wonder how that will be remembered. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, do you think that this compilation is a good representation of the work that EMC did? Well, I mean, I uh, I understand where Carl's concern is coming from. Mm-hmm. Part of it is that Carl's aesthetic sits. And my aesthetic, uh, I mean, I, I have a wide aesthetic and I enjoy the electronic music and other stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the major complaints I have with it um, are, are that there were some people that included that were included that really had nothing to do with each electronic music collective. There uh, were just people I... that Douglas, Douglas um, liked that he tapes he found in Eugene. He's decided they would he would uh, associate them with this compilation because they happen to live in Eugene. Right. And... So I wasn't very happy with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing was was that, um, you know, I had, if someone came to me and said, hey, you know, we're going to put out a compilation of the Eugene Electronic Music Collective. Um, I mean, I my idea of what material I would select or what piece I would pick from mm-hmm. all the pieces that were part of what I released when I was in the EMC, my idea of what I would pick is not what, uh, was picked. <laughs> Got okay. it. it. The, the clean one would not be the one you would have included. <laughs> that would not. Have, I would not have picked that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. But it mm-hmm. You know. And what I came to understand about this, and I don't take it. Up, I mean, one thing you have to understand here is Douglas did all the work, right? Right. It's his <laughs> compilation. <laughs> it's his compilation. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, there was some some a lot of angry emails going back at one point. People were upset about various things, and you know, I finally got to the point. I said, look, you know. He's doing it, and we're not, okay? Right. And he wants to present – it is his vision, right? Mm-hmm. And 
he's also a record producer. So I feel like he wanted to produce some kind of cohesive thought vision about what this was all representing. And you can tell just from our conversation here, all the different threads and uh, kind of movements and stuff that were all really kind of mixed up right, right. Um, in Eugene at that particular time. So, mm-hmm. you know, he could just as well include the carry on commandos on this <laughs> you know, as, right. as uh, some of the other people, but he was looking for a, mm-hmm. uh, he had a, you know, it's, it's one man discovering something and having his interpretation of it. Well, and, and that doesn't even uh, exclude the possibility that you could have a, a, a more EEMC-centric version of this idea in the future. You know, like, as I understand, there's plenty of recordings that could re- no, resurface. <laughs> you know, um, In fact, uh, Todd, you know, there's a guy, Todd White, who was in the picture, but none of us had, had run into him hmm. until somebody found him on Facebook. Oh. And so, like, one day or three days before this thing, uh, it's like, hey, it's Todd White. Hey, guys. <laughs> and, uh, well, it turns out that he has a, a recording of one of the live concerts we did, oh. which was at uh, Lane Community College. Very Which cool. I have a relatively vague recollection of. I know it was me and Peter and Todd, at least. And we don't, in fact, Peter and I were just talking about who exactly was there. And I think Joel might've been there, but I, anyway, so I'm, I'm waiting for the tape to arrive so I can hear what it sounds like. <laughs> cool. Um, that's not, see, that's the best p- part about these kinds of things is that, uh, mm-hmm. as the word gets out and as people's memories start churning, we make little discoveries like these tapes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So well, we'll see what happens, but you know, I don't fault Douglas because, mm-hmm. you know, the other thing is, you know, if it wasn't for him, this never would have happened. And, right. you know, he, Numero is a very successful record album, a record label, because they specialize in these kinds of projects and they understand how a project like this has to be put together mm-hmm. for them to make money. Right. right. Yeah. So, um, you know, I could also, I, I think he should have credited the, some of the Xerox art, especially, you know, Carl basically got the back cover and, mm-hmm. uh, all the images that were used there were all provided by us, but not one person from the EMC was credited for the images. So, right. I, but you know, mm-hmm. that's the way it goes. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, unfortunately, as someone who's talked to enough people who have been involved in making records and whatnot, um, you guys got away pretty unscathed. <laughs> I've heard yeah, some horror stories. Oh yeah, I and, mean, I actually, when I was, uh, I got the contract. I, I didn't. Um, you know, I never really had a contract like this with the record company, so I didn't know mm-hmm. whether. And so I actually have one old friend from college, who, uh, actually, you might have even heard of him. His name is Trey Gunn. Oh yes, um, yes. Uh, uh, Trey Gunn? He used to live in Eugene, and and he was in bands, and now he's uh, yeah. got his own group. Yes, and he was in King Crimson for many years. Yes. Um, so he was the only person I knew that had a lot of experience. So I, so I like call him up i said trey here's this contract i don't know i've never had one of these before is this a good deal or not mm-hmm. and he asked who the record label who it was and i said the new group. he said oh they're great you know they have a very good reputation absolutely and, and by the way they're, if they're giving you money up front he said that's a good deal <laughs> <laughs> so spoken like I, someone I who knows the truth as record companies <laughs> went and that the numeral group had an excellent reputation and they were they were your 
treating us well, yes. right? And, so, and that's the bottom line too, is that like, yeah, I I've, haven't heard any horror stories about them. So like you didn't get one of these no. like awful like 70s deals where, you know, you have no rights and no money at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that was back when record companies actually, uh, you know, they would essentially buy artists and put everything out, right? Mm-hmm. And essentially acquire the rights to all the artists' music, right? And then you wouldn't be able to do anything. Right. Now, uh, now to be clear, in this case, Numeral Group has acquired the rights to the music that they put on this compilation for a period of seven years. I mean, that's part of the contract, right? right? So I can't go take the clinging and put it out anytime in the next seven years without violating my contract. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. I mean, sure. I, it's not like, it's and not like it was still hear it. <laughs> right. And so then and that's perfectly reasonable. Right. I mean, that's right. That's how such things work. So absolutely. And it wasn't like there was any big secret about it. Right? So. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Okay. Now I take it that uh, the Philip vernacular name has been retired or the Philip vernacular name has been retired. Mm. So the CD that came be, the earliest material that's the last philip vernacular um release got it and there isn't you know i never really stopped doing anything but in the 90s i had you know i got married and had children and there's babies running around and... <laughs> i get yeah it's it's a le- less of a um you suddenly your free time gets eaten up very very quickly. That's right, and <laughs> so I had a kind of a lean period between uh, in the nineties. I mm-hmm. didn't do a whole lot. Yeah. Um, and then starting in the late nineties and going to two thousand, I got moved sort of more into the computer and into Pro Tools and other mm. you know tech stuff, and where I've been ever since. And, so yeah. that's where most of the, what I have on the CD is from. That's such a powerful uh, piece of software, too, that, like, you know... Uh, it is. When, when, especially for people who are inclined to make music. You know, so I started on four-track recordings. And so, right. like, just yes. making that mental jump of, like, I can do this on the computer, and it's so much faster, and it's so much more precise, and, you know, mm-hmm. like... I, mean, I certainly music changed in that way where you are no longer dealing with these analog qualities that um, came to define what you were doing. Um, but uh, at the same time, like there's something about finding pro tools that it's, it's a whole other world. It's true. Although I have to say that one of the major influences, and I was just thinking about this this morning and I hadn't because I'm anticipating your call and I realized that one of the major influences on me as a composer, musician, the style of music I make is the reel-to-reel tape recorder. Oh, and, interesting. You know, it's the very first thing I had access to to make music with. Even in high school, my mom had one, and I made this piece of music with nothing but my voice and the tape recorder, mm-hmm. and I would you know, I would actually bypass the erase head and so I could do overdubbing. It's just a two track recorder. Yeah. And then I would bypass the capstan and I would pull the tape through at various speeds, slow, fast, slow, fast, <laughs> while I was talking into the microphone. And that would produce this bloopy, lurpy kind of uh, pitch shifting, right? Mm-hmm. When you played it back at a regular speed. And one of the coolest effects, of course, was to record something and then play it back at half speed. Right. And. I just, I realized looking back that that sound, that 
that approach to playing things back at half speed, that's really one of my favorite things to do. And I've done it on a lot of my pieces of music. Hmm. Uh, you know, and if something, and you know, if something doesn't, if something's not working out, right, you're trying to get a conversation together and you're stuck, make it go half speed. Right. If that doesn't sound good, make it go a quarter speed. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, that doesn't work. Time stretch it times eight. So you have, <laughs> well, the thing that was like a minute and a half long is now 90 minutes long. Right. And then figure out what to do with it. So, <laughs> um, you know, as you somebody know. who spent a lot of time listening to a real to real player uh, as a kid, like I, I, I have in my room the very piece of equipment you're talking about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I can envision this idea of like taking off the cover and manipulating the tape mm -hmm. as, it, you know, again, a thing that it sounds like, you know, old man talk, but uh, was absolutely the way you made this kind of music in those days. Yeah. And the other thing that was very uh so carl and i i i hadn't tried about this the other thing that carl and i did was very early on because we you know we had our own um uh, we made music together the two of us and there is an entire archive of stuff that hasn't seen the light of day that we called outlying industrial areas and <laughs> it's kind of proto-industrial music kind of before people really had an industrial aesthetic but mm. one the thing that got us started was was Fripp and Eno's tape loops and oh, Robert yes. Fripp's Let the Power Fall and Under Heavy Manners and this, his uh, taking two Reeboks A77s and doing this tape loop stuff. And at the, the time I was working, yeah, Frippertronics. So it, it, at the time I was working in, in the AV department at the University of Oregon. <laughs> and I was like, and Carl's like, this would be really cool. And I was like, wait. We can do this. I can check out. I, there's two reel-to-reel -reel tape makers. I can check them out and so cool. take them home for the weekend. So I did. And these were like, these were the old reel-to-reels that had like the two speakers mounted on the top that were you could take apart and yes. it was kind of a stereo system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and they weighed, I, I guess because I was in my early 20s, it wasn't a problem. Right. But they weighed like 40 pounds a piece. Or I am walking because I didn't have a car, <laughs> walking from the University of Oregon to my apartment uh, oh, with wow. two 40-pound tape recorders. And then Carl and I would try to get something going. And, of course, they were lower fi so we'd get these horrendous roars and noise and uh, have to deal with it. But that was a big – we really liked the, this whole process thing, right? It was like, okay, you don't have to really be a musician here. You just have to be – you have to understand the process and what's going to happen. Hmm. And, and you can make this kind of process music. That's really interesting yeah. by just injecting sounds in and being sort of discreet about what you do. And mm -hmm. you can produce this interesting stuff. conversation with Brian McGill, a musician and artist who, uh, you know, uh, worked in a very cool and curious time in music history when, uh, you know, the whole 
world and playing field was ahead of us and we could mess around with these synthesizers and imagine whole universes of sound that had yet to be recorded. And uh, yeah, I don't know, I just, uh, um, I, uh, I have a fondness for that Numero Group compilation, which if I have not mentioned it enough on this show, please check out the Switched On Eugene collection of recordings. Uh, it's it's very cool, and I think it, 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 um, it captures a time and a place and a sound that you're not going to find on other things. And, you know, while I'm at it, why don't I reference and uh, put in links to Brian's current work as well, which uh, you have yet to hear about. <clears throat> uh, called a Clock Facelift and Fervent Torpor. Those are the two different groups. Uh, Clock Facelift is more prog rock and Fervent Torpor is more electronic. And, uh, yeah, um, you know, Brian is active and current. Uh, I don't think he ever stopped actually making music. I think he just, you know, was no longer in the EEMC. <laughs> so, uh, that's how that cookie crumbles. Uh, you know, check us out online, uh, anywhenanywhere.com. Uh, that's our new home on the Interwebatron. And, uh, yeah, that's where you'll find every episode of this program and all the other related information about what we do. It's been kind of nice to get that domain sorted out. It's almost a full year-long process in and of itself, uh, and far too costly, uh, I might add. Uh, sometimes domain registration is a pain. So, um, yes, uh, that is where you can find us, and please check that out. There's lots of cool things there, lots of information about stuff, and, uh, you know, for those of you who maybe haven't visited before and your entire relationship with the podcast is only this particular show, let me mention again, extensive show notes. We put in links and information about the conversations so that you can find more stuff about these artists. And I think that it's the kind of thing I would love to find in a podcast, and I hope that you do. That's going to do it for us this week. Uh, You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. And without you, there would be no program. Be seeing you. Yeah, I only have one last kind of thing, really, that I'm curious about. And, you know, it's fun to talk about the past, but we hinted at that you have a current project uh, that's more in the prog rock uh, vein. Let's talk about this. Uh, Are you guys playing out, or is it still more in the songwriting stage? Well, here's the problem. Um, (laughs) A band's called Clock Facelift. Okay. And we don't really like this name very much, but so far we haven't come up with a better one. Um, <laughs> oh, this is a, every band right goes now, through this period. Every band goes through this um, period. Right now, I play keyboards, and we have a bass player who also plays guitar, and we have a drummer. Mm, okay. And we lost our bass player, and the bass player switched, or the guitar player switched to bass because he can also play bass. So part of it right now, we went and recorded a bunch of stuff in their studio. Mm. And the idea that the guitar player was going to overdub, he's going to play bass and he's going to overdub his guitar parts. Right. And some of that stuff sitting there, but we really weren't very satisfied 
overall hmm. with the tracks we recorded in the studio. They just weren't up like, enough up to snuff. So we're back to rehearsing right now. Uh, I'm thinking about we've had some other musicians, you know, come to the band and uh, they haven't worked out and had a guitar player. It kind of showed up, thought everything was interesting and then didn't show up again. Oh, no. So <laughs> kind of trying to decide whether to build another. Well, it's just part of having a band. I Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, um, we have some things. There are a few things up on SoundCloud, but there's they're really uh, pretty old at this point. And we mm. really need to do a better job of getting things up. But the biggest problem is that, you know, I work full time for a large you know, Fortune 500 company. Got it. Uh, moi, the drummer is a post band. He works every Saturday. And <laughs> so does the guitar player works for Tektronics. So all we can do is rehearse once a week for a couple of hours. And it's just not enough time to progress on this very much. Um, we should slow, play out, actually. Yeah, slow increments. We should play out. We have enough. We have a whole set worth of material and an album's worth of material at this point, And we should, you know, do something with it. But... You know, things move slow. Yeah, but you know, this is the sign of a much more mature musical effort than <clears throat> perhaps like something I would have done in my twenties, where you just grab the first four guys that you know that can play anything and you try to start a band. Um, right. Uh, exactly. Because like, um, there's a point where you just get excited about playing, and so you want to be playing, and then there's this other phase which I'm much more interested in, where you go like, well, the project deserves better than what we're giving it. So mm-hmm. how do we get there? Um, right. And I'm and, always, always you know, fascinated but, in that process. And, you know, I struggle a little bit with the drummer who was very basic as a drummer. I mean, um, he doesn't really have the skills that I would hope for, mm. for the kind of music that we're making, mm-hmm. but he's extraordinarily loyal and <laughs> he's there every week. Sure. And he has a really big basement that we rehearse in. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, you have to make choices. Sure. Well, and, so, and hopefully you guys can learn together too to you know find this the sound that you're looking for. I hope so. It's like I said, we've got enough stuff, and uh, we should be playing. We should play out as soon as somebody gets around to booking a gig somewhere. Um, <laughs> it's kind of the other thing is it's kind of my band, and I'm the busiest of everyone. So uh, you know, if I don't book a band, if I don't book a gig, it's probably not going to happen. Right. Um, Right. And, this is uh, a, a, the shame of a, a many bands is that uh, sometimes uh, they need a manager or another person who's not playing an instrument to do that kind mm-hmm. of work. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, and so, well, like I said, I sent you off a copy of my C- my CD by Fervent Torpor. So, Fervent Torpor is my um, is the name under which I make music. I have made since about 2000, the last 18 years, I've been mm. doing stuff as fervent torpor. Got it. And in that time, I, I have, like I said, what I finally, you know, decided I had to do something to wrap up all this material I had out there. So I kind of distilled everything down to one CD's worth of material and, and put it out. Mm. And to sort of, if nothing else, just sort of draw a line, you know, so this is, this is something. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have another, so many, so much unreleased material. Uh, <laughs> all so much stuff. Yeah. I well, have, this probably, is the I, thing about people who work uh, for as long as you have is that like, it's not like you just, you know, put out one thing and then move on. Like we're collecting these recordings as we go over time. And, you know, like. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have. Um, 
So there's a CD from just before the material that's on the CD I did, which is very ambient and kind of almost industrial in some places um, that uh, is sitting around waiting for me to do something with. There's another ambient compilation that I have sitting around waiting to actually do public packaging and stuff for. Uh, I haven't done a lot of uh, ambient music over the years and um, and then there's at least another CD's worth of stuff that I didn't put onto the CD that I put out <laughs> WTPC anywhere anywhere from my house to yours